morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. If you'd like to be part of today's show, just give us a call. It's 499-9526. And unfortunately, the first couple of minutes of our show today kind of got messed up with a little technical snafu. However, we got all the rest of it here and intact. Our first caller was Thomas, and Thomas has a Honda Odyssey. His low-beam headlights won't come on. He was checking the problem, and we checked the fuse blue. So this is where we're picking up today's show. It couldn't have blown the fuse unless it had power going there. It blew the headlight fuse? Yeah. Okay, well, then power's got to be getting to that socket. And Honda headlight wiring's a little bit different from most in that you've got left and right are on different circuits. you got power to the low beam and to the high beam come up the same exact line. There's Both of them are hot all the time. And the switch actually controls the ground. Actually, the ground will ground whichever filament, be it high or low beam, and that's how it turns on the light. But... Both of them come up through a common fuse. There's a left fuse and a right fuse. But if you blew the fuse when you checked it, then that has to be getting power there. So I'm assuming that the problem has to be on the ground side of the circuit. What you're going to need to do is probably go ahead and remove all of the bulbs to just kind of isolate the system. And even with the switch off, you ought to have power on one side of the socket. That's the hot side. The other side with the switch off should have no continuity to ground. But when you turn the switch on, you should have continuity to ground. Now, obviously, you're getting continuity to ground on the high beam, or the high beam wouldn't be working. Did both of those bulbs go out at the same time, or did one of them go out and you didn't notice it, and then maybe the next one went out? They both went out at the same time. Simultaneously, huh? High is the only thing that works. That sounds like something well, like Well, see, a- if high beam is working, then you know... It means the power side of the circuit has got to be working because it uses the same relays and the same fuses to power the low beam and the high beam. So it's got to be getting power there if the high beams are working. It's got to be on the ground side of the circuit. And there are separate bulbs, though. Yeah, it is a separate right. bulb, but I think but the same power source feeds them both. It's just the grounds are split and the switch controls the different grounds for high or low beam. Okay. The only way to check that, Thomas, would be just to start tracing back. Use your voltmeter to find out which side is hot, and then try grounding the other side of the circuit and see if the light comes on. If you provide a ground and the light comes on, then it's going to be something from the socket back towards the switch. Take your bulbs out, which will isolate the circuit. Take a voltmeter okay. and hook one lead to power. Again, what kind of disturbs me is that it blew that fuse when you were checking it. I think it's going to be an open wire on the ground side of the lighting circuit, possibly between the socket and the headlight. There's also what they call a multiplex module in there, but they really don't give much trouble. And I think the high beam works through it as well. So I'm looking for a broken wire somewhere, not providing ground to the headlights. It's going to be a little bit difficult to find, but I think the way to do it would be to remove all the bulbs to isolate your circuit and then just start testing like from the sockets back towards the switch and look and see where the ground falls out. Okay. Has any modifications been done to the truck at all, Thomas? No. The only thing was it came back from the shop from hitting a deer. Probably okay, it's been in an accident. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I'll bet you you're going to have a wire that That's has fixed. rubbed against a piece of metal somewhere, or maybe somebody ran a sheet metal screw th- through something and hit a wire. Yeah. Also pretty common for a ground to be left off. And there's a little bolt that goes through the eyelet. If they have to take that off to repair something, they may not have put that screw back in, and you're not getting a ground for the headlights. Almost every case that I've seen where you've got a wiring issue like that, the vehicle's either been modified or wrecked. Okay. Because the stock system with the harness and all, you just hardly ever have wiring problems. What, Almost always going to be something like that. What you can do is start tracing that wiring back, mm-hmm. and you may find it, find where a sheet metal screw went through it, like Lewis said, or mm-hmm. maybe it's been rubbing on something since it was repaired. Correct. It right, should be got pinched and they kept the same harness. Yeah. Right. That should right. be fairly easy to find as far as looking for 
for something. And another way to check it would be just like, say, start out removing the bulbs on the circuit that's blowing the fuse, remove the relay, and do the same thing with your voltmeter, touch the terminals in the headlight socket. On the ground circuit, it should read 12 volts because you got a ground circuit through your ground. If it does not read, then the ground's open. And one more thing you can try. You know how on your headlight switch on the steering column, when you flip it forward, it'll blink the brights? Try flipping that and see if the brights will blink on. When you flip that switch forward, that grounds the high beam, but I think that also is the same wire that grounds the low beam. If it does not work, and when you flip that switch forward, if it doesn't blink the bright lights at you, that ground wire is probably either cut or disconnected. Okay. All righty. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Where are you calling from, Thomas? Frederick, Maryland. Oh, okay, oh, great. great. Hey, I'll be up there next weekend, as a matter of fact. No kidding. Yeah, we're going up to Colonial Williamsburg for the weekend, Thanksgiving. Oh, enjoy it. That's, that's wonderful up there. Oh, it sure will. Thanks for yeah, calling, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, bye-bye. 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. Why don't you go ahead and give us calls? 499-9526. Funny <laughs> 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 the way that worked out. Uh, How about that? <laughs> and we got D.D. online. Good morning, D.D. Good morning. Yes, ma'am. Good morning. Um, I'm calling about my 2007 Toyota Tunda. Okay. My cruise control is not working. Okay. It worked for a while. Like, I mean, it worked great for mm-hmm. a long time, but recently it just started working about 80% of the time. Okay. And then, you know, it went down to maybe 50%. Now mm-hmm. it doesn't work at all. Yeah, when it doesn't work, Dee Dee, it'll engage and then just drop out, or it just won't engage? No, it doesn't engage at all. You just push the button, it does nothing? Nothing. Yeah, most of the time, and I can't say this for certain, because obviously I hadn't seen the car, but most of the, the switch for the cruise control is about the only thing simple, that or the brake light switch, because it works through the electronic control module, which is the engine computer. It doesn't have a separate computer on it. And most of the time, if there's an error like in the speed sensor or any of that, that little cruise light would flash at you. It would just start flashing a code. If it's not doing any of that, it could be the switch itself is bad. Beyond that, it's going to be a pretty big deal. It's going to either be in the throttle body or the ECM, either one of which is very expensive. Generally, when it won't engage at all, it's going to be that problem. Most time, when you have a bad switch, you can press it. Sometimes it'll work, sometimes it doesn't, and it'll kind of come on and drop out and that sort of thing. And the brake light switch can also cause it, but again, it'll engage, and you go down the road, it just drops out most of the time with that. That system actually does set a code just like a check engine light does. It just okay. And you can go in with a, with a scan tool and read the code, and that will tell you the circuit that's creating the problem. You actually have to have a factory scan tool to get that information because a generic scan tool, as far as the low code readers and things, won't go to all it checks is the engine control right, module. Right, just PCM. But if you got a Toyota scan tool, which most good shops do, you can go in and read the code. It will, like, it's not going to tell you what's wrong. It just tells you the circuit that's causing the problem, and then you just have to do a little bit of detective work to find out what it is. Probably take an hour or less to diagnose that problem. So most shops are going to charge somewhere between ninety and one hundred and ten dollars an hour. So somewhere in that range. And then at that point, if it's too big an expense, you may elect, well, I'm just going to live without cruise. If it's not too big, I mean, it could be simple as just a wire broken or something like that, but. Most of the time, when it just won't engage at all, I find it ends up being the, either the cruise switch. And if it's not that, then it's probably something like a problem in the ECM or a problem in the throttle body. Possibly it could be like a speed sensor or something like that, but that was less common. So it can get pretty expensive. Oh, I see. So you said it's pretty expensive to fit? Yes, ma'am. If it's the throttle body or the ECM module, Joe, that's a pretty expensive part. I, th- I want to say a six dollars $700 part. Um, how many? Uh, about six to seven hundred dollars just for the part. Oh, okay. 
So you, a lot of people just decide not to have cruise control anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, it is possible that that's not it. Right. You know, something like the brake light switch can cause the same problem. If it thinks the brakes are applied when they aren't, it's going to kill the cruise control. The little switch that engages it can go bad under certain conditions. And again, that's relatively expensive. So if you like having your cruise, I'd probably have it checked and at least find out what it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Yes, okay, ma'am. Dee, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. 499-9526, the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Eye, we'd love to have you. And we're going back to the lines with Gene. Good morning, Gene. Hey, what's going on, man? Yeah, great, Good morning. Hey, I got a 2009 Chevrolet. Okay. And I put some synthetic oil in it. But uh-huh. You know, you're supposed to go about seven, 8,000 miles on that. It depends on the way you drive it, Gene. Miles alone, without considering other facts, it's really not a good way to judge oil changes. I know everybody does it, but it's really not a very accurate way at all. Because one guy is going to get in his car, go to the grocery store, turn it off. It's going to sit there. He's going to come home. He lives maybe two miles from work. He's taking little short trips all the time, like me. I'd never go more than about five miles at a time. Well, that is extreme service. My oil at 3,000 miles is 100% depleted. And synthetic oil does not go any longer than regular oil. In fact, it gets dirtier than regular oil because it's better detergent. So longevity is not an issue. Now, let's say you work in New Orleans and you live in Baton Rouge, and you drive 80 miles each way to work. Well, yeah, you can go much longer because that's highway driving, and that's much, much easier on all because it's getting hot any moisture in it is boiling out, and the PC system sucking it out of steam, so it stays much, much cleaner and doesn't break down nearly as quick. So it just depends on your driving habits. The way you operate the car is going to be your better judge. You do a pretty good mix of a highway and city, or what's your average trip? 30 minutes. Yeah, when you're driving 30 minutes at a time, man, you could probably get by with 5000 pretty easy. Right. I'm kind of conservative because I've seen the cost of not changing all is just so much higher than the cost of changing all. Okay. You start getting things like seals start getting hard, and a rear main seal job about eight hundred bucks. So you're not ever going to save that much on all changes. Okay. You know? Question number two. Mm-hmm. It burns probably. I just didn't get put three quarts of oil in it, and it's only been right at four thousand miles. Yeah, it's burning some oil. If that's the case, you would actually be a lot better off, Gene, using conventional oil and just changing more often. Okay. I don't ever recommend synthetic oil to people who think they can go longer or are trying to save money. It's not a money saving thing. It's a better protection thing, but it's not going to save you money because you're not ever going to push it out long enough to make up the difference in price. If you're consuming oil anyway, I would be using a conventional oil, and I'd be changing more often. More frequent changes can actually help with oil consumption. Well, look, man, thank you all very All right. Have a great all right, day. sir. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Eye, we'd love to have you. And we've got Gerald on line. Good morning, Gerald. Hey, Lewis. Yes, sir. 2002 vehicle Sabre, and I'm hearing a little whining noise like when I first take off from a stoplight, and it changes in pitch when the transmission shifts. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, Gerald, what I would try to do first, see if you can duplicate the noise sitting still. Uh-huh. Just put it in park and kind of raise the RPM a little bit and see if the noise is there. Uh-huh. If the noise is there sitting still, then you may have something like a filter that's starting to plug on your transmission that'll make a whining noise like that if putting it in drive sitting still changes the noise and there's when you shift different gears but not move if the noise changes then more likely you are into a transmission type issue now if shifting gears sitting still does not affect the noise but the noise is there sitting still it could be an engine type problem i mean there's a number of things that can whine like that For instance, I've seen an oil filter, particularly an aftermarket oil filter, the little bypass valve whine and make a a humming noise like that. 
See, when the transmission shifts, the engine RPM also changes. It winds up to one speed, and then when it shifts, it drops down. So just because it occurs when it's shifting doesn't necessarily indicate a transmission problem because engine speed is also varying at the same time. Now, something real easy you can do is just take the belt off of it. Right. Crank it up. Bring it back up to the RPMs. If the noise is gone, it's probably going to be an accessory drive. Right. One of the pulleys or one of the accessories has got a bad bearing in it. Now, if it goes away when you take the belt off. If you take the serpentine belt off just temporarily, crank it up, and the noise is gone, you know it's something that the motor is driving. Now, Correct. One last thing, Gerald. If you put it in gear or going down the road, and the noise is not there. You can't duplicate it sitting still. And it's only there when the car is rolling. It's more likely going to be something in the suspension, like a wheel bearing or something like that. So... What you need to find is just what affects the noise, because that's going to point you in the right direction. Uh-huh. The, you know, the okay. things that affect it. All righty. I appreciate it. All right. Where are you calling from, Gerald? Clarksville, Tennessee. Clarksville, Great. Tennessee. All right. But did you give me your name and number? I did. I uh, used to live in Denham Springs, but I moved away about a year ago. So okay. So the show's on. So oh, I'm well, good Great. deal. We appreciate you doing it. All righty. All right, Gerald. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. And we've got Wayne online. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. Yes, Good sir. Morning. Ask, ask me where I'm calling from in my mind or physically. <laughs> well, in I your mind, you. I'm thinking Hawaii. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you hit it right over here. I'm from Hawaii. But physically, I'm calling from that region. There you go. All right, sir. Question. I just had this start happening. I have a 2010 Dodge Ram 1500 truck, uh-huh. 117,000 miles. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, yes. but I'm having a noise when I start the truck in the morning, and I think it's a fan blowing noise. It's kind of like a bump, 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 bump type hmm. noise, and it'll and, and and I have the air conditioner on and the heat on. It won't blow, but once that noise stops, the air starts blowing out the vent. Right. You know what that probably is, All Wayne? Right. Is an actuator under the dash. It'll make a thump, 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 thump noise. That's yeah. Right. Right. They have had a tremendous, tremendous problem with the actuators on those trucks, and they are actually under warranty extension on a lot of the models. Okay. So first thing to do is call the dealership and give them the VIN number off your truck and ask if it's under any kind of warranty extension or policy adjustment. That's because, because I just got a recall notice this week, not for that, for something in the yeah. transmission or the rear end. And see, yeah, just ask them that. And and actually, recall is the wrong word because recall is safety related. It's more of a policy adjustment or a warranty extension. So ask them if there's a warranty extension on the actuators and if your truck is covered. But an actuator is just like a little motor. And what it does is gear driven and it moves some doors. It sounds like the one on what they call the mode door is probably hanging up. Okay. And the thump, 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 thump is the gear jumping over itself. Okay, because that's what it is, because I can move it to different modes. Correct. And it, and it, I mean, different positions in the truck to go to the floor. And right, it that's up. when it'll do it. Yep. And see, if you'll f- notice when it's not blowing, if you reach down at the floor and reach up at the windshield, it's probably either blowing out of the defrost or out of the floor. It's just not blowing Correct. out the vents. Yeah, it's, it's the Correct. mode door actuator. See if it's covered under warranty, and if it is, of course, let them do it. If you got to pay for it, you just soon find somebody going to yeah, do you exactly. a better job at a lower price. Go to an independent right. shop. and. Is that something y'all can do? Absolutely, yes, sir. Good. Good. All right. Okay. Thanks, man. Okay, Wayne. All right, sir. Thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Fire, we're going to take a quick little break and be right back with more. Plan to motor west. Good morning. 
and welcome back to Automotive Maintenance School, fellas. Good morning. Yesterday, we left off talking about how to upsell your customers with the sneaky $24.99 oil change. Yeah, they come in for the special and bam, we hit them with other problems we just happened to find while doing the oil change. <laughs> yeah, and then you tell them, it's a good thing you came in for our oil change special. Yeah, you may never have known you needed all this work. Yeah, sound like you fellas did your homework. I just hope none of your customers did. <laughs> Agco Automotive has this to say about low price oil changes. Take advantage of them. And if you get a list of recommended repairs, bring your vehicle to us for an honest opinion of what, if anything, needs to be fixed. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco. It's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Trim Drills, try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 499-9526. And we've got Mike's been patiently holding. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. I've got a 08 Tundra, okay. and I'm having trouble with my cruise control. Okay. okay. Sometimes the, the the switch, the functions that the switch does, you know, on, off, accelerate, decelerate, yes, mm -hmm. set, all of that stuff. Sometimes it works perfectly. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Okay. And sometimes when you hit the on button, the light will come on and everything's fine. Sometimes the light will come on, it won't set. Sometimes the light won't come on at all. Sometimes you'll be driving down the highway and you... Go to disengage mm -hmm. using the switch. It won't disengage. If you hit step on the brake, it disengages. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And I took it in, took it into the dealership, mm -hmm. and they diagnosed it as a faulty switch, and they replaced it. Mm -hmm. Well, the other day, I'm going to Houston, and on the ride over to Houston, everything functioned perfectly. On the way back, nothing worked. And then the other day, also going up to Mississippi, and again, Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't think that that would be the switch, would have been the switch, just because of what you're telling me. If the light comes on, but it won't engage, sounds to me like the switch is sending the input to the module, but it's just not engaging crews. I would say that's far more likely going to be a, a fault in one of the sensors that it needs, like the speed sensor or the throttle position sensor or something like that, or something in the fail-safe system maybe shutting it down. In other words, if it sees certain conditions, it's going to shut it down. Like, for instance, if the skid control has a problem and it thinks it's skidding, it's going to shut the cruise off. If the switch were bad, I just don't think it would have turned the light on when you hit it and not engaged the cruise. It would have not sent a signal at all. Because the switch is basically just an on-off switch. It's just sending, yeah, a, sending a pulse to the module, and the module's doing everything from there. You know, sometimes you, like the other day, I'll be going down the road. But once it, once it engages, mm -hmm. it stays engaged. I mean, it'll go until I put my foot on the brake. Yeah. You know, I'm driving for, you know, 200 miles, and mm -hmm. it'll be fine as long as I don't have to put my foot on the brake. Yeah. We had an earlier caller with the same exact problem, same vehicle. What you have to do is go in, Mike. There's going to be some codes stored. And when it fails to engage or when it does anything out of the ordinary, it is going to store a code just like a check engine light does. So it's just a matter of going in, retrieving the codes, and interpreting the codes. Now, if the module itself is bad, it may not set a code because it doesn't know anything's going on. In other words, when the kind of like a person is crazy, it may not know they're crazy. <laughs> it doesn't know that there's a problem, so it may not right. set a code in that case. But 
from what you're telling me, just with all the different scenarios that it's doing. It sounds like one of the external sensors that it depends on is dropping out. There should be some other issues, though, like a speedometer dropping up and down or something else. Of course, you may or may not see that. It could be going to fail safe because it thinks some other condition exists. Like if it thinks the vehicle is skidding sideways because the yaw sensor is bad, it could shut the cruise down. May or may not cause any other symptoms. I would probably go back and say, hey, look, guys, you know, you told me it was a switch. I died that done, but it's still doing largely the same thing. And see if they're willing to do anything for you at no cost or at low cost. If they can't or won't or whatever, and you choose someone else, what you would do is start out by scanning it, getting the codes out, see what codes indicate, if any. Any other things happening on the vehicle other than the cruise malfunctioning? Any, no, anything no. else not working? Anything acting a little weird or quirky? No, no, everything's fine. Hmm. I mean, it is. I, I was just wondering if could it have been a faulty switch that they that they installed. Man, the odds of that are pretty slim. I, I, anything can happen, Mike, but the odds are pretty slim. And just doesn't from the, the symptoms you're giving me, it just sounds more involved than a switch. Basically, yeah. the switch just sends an on-off pulse to the module, and the module pretty much handles everything from there. And if you're not getting that pulse, I don't think the light would have come on. And just not engage. You know, I think it would have just ignored you completely. Right. Or anything like a fuse or a bad wire or a switch or any of that, it wouldn't have done anything. But the fact that it sometimes the light comes on but it doesn't engage, that kind of more or less guides me towards the module or an input to the module. Again, it shouldn't be a real difficult thing to diagnose. It's just a matter of going in, seeing if there are codes involved. And sometimes if it's hard to duplicate like for instance if you have to drive it 100 miles to get it to do it well yeah it's gonna be pretty hard to find because right and it's just there's no rhyme or reason to it matter of fact i'm driving right now and i just tried to push the button and nothing came on mm -hmm. and just now i just pushed the button and the light came on and it's engaged yeah i would first go and have the codes read and see if there are any code because okay. that'll make it pretty easy if they are. If they are not, then you're going to probably have to wait till it gets a little more consistent for them to find it. There is a small chance that the brake light switch can cause that. If it thinks it sees brake application, even though it doesn't, it's going to come out. Right. And, you know, it could be a little bleed across on the brake light switch. We have changed a few brake light switches on Tundras, not for that problem so much, but for ABS problems and such. If it gets any kind of a bleed across that switch and it thinks there's some brake application, then it's going to kick it out. Okay, Lewis. But, well, and uh, that will also, is your fuel mileage where it's always been? You're not down on yeah. fuel mileage at all, are you? No. Okay, because normally the brake light switch is going to diminish your fuel mileage slightly because it kicks it out of lockup also. I think I would take it back, have them scan it, see if there's any codes in there. If so, act on the codes. If not, you may just have to kind of put up with it to get a little more consistent because it's going to be difficult to bring it to them and have it act up for them where they can truly tell you what it is. Right. Understood. All righty. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. Welcome to the modern automobile. Oh, yeah, man. I tell oh, you. I tell you. That's something. With intermittent problems like that, a lot of times you may have to drive it 100, 150 miles before something acts up. Sure. And it's just really not practical for someone in a dealership to put a technician in a car and let him go drive your car for 100 miles to see exactly. if it's going to act up. Cost would be exorbitant for one thing. Now, one other possibility, if it acts up pretty consistently after driving 100 miles, then go drive it 100 miles and then bring it in. Exactly. You'll make arrangements, hey, I'm going to be here at this time. Go drive the car, get the miles on it, have it act up, and then bring it in real quick, and he can check it and save exactly. you a bunch of money. Hey, one more quick little break, and we'll be right back with more in the Automotive Hour. Mike, how are you and things at the dealership's maintenance department? Dave, things are great. 
You guys still running that low-price $24.99 oil change at your place? Oh, yeah. Folks come in and we just happen to find a ton of other stuff wrong with their car. <laughs> Works, don't it? Sometimes when it's a woman, I make something up like, your flux capacitor has a leak. Yeah, or your strepanoid filter head needs to be replaced. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I gotta write that down. Agco Automotive wants to let you know how to stick it to the low-price oil chain shops. Go get the oil change, and then take your vehicle and their list of recommended repairs to Agco for an honest opinion of what, if anything, needs to be fixed. And we'll fix only that. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Tune Tools will try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 499-9526. And we've got Jeremy online. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, yes. I have a problem with a check engine light on 2001 Chevy Blazer. Okay. Um, it has 170,000 miles. Okay. And I had the code scan, and mm-hmm. it seems to be a cylinder one misfire. Okay. I also had the compression test done on it, mm-hmm. and that cylinder one has a low compression, and ah. I was just trying to figure out where I should go <laughs> yeah, uh, from here. If it's truly low compression in the cylinder, Jeremy, it's going to be an internal engine problem. And just got to kind of decide what you want to do to best. Number one is, of course, you can continue to drive it as it is for a while, so you're not under the gun to do anything. But it's going to either be a matter of determining why the compression is low. Now, the way you would do that, when they do the compression test, they just kind of measure the pressure that the cylinder is making. But there is a little more involved test that you can do. What you can do is, while the spark plugs are still out, Squirt a little bit of light all down in that cylinder and then run the check again and see if the pressure comes up substantially. Like, let's say the first time you run the test, you have 175 pounds in the old cylinders and you only have 100 in that cylinder. You put a little light all down the cylinder, run it again, and let's say it comes up to 150. Well, what that tells you is that it's something on the rings of the piston is not sealing and all temporarily sealed it so the pressure came up. Now, most likely it will not come up, and if it does not come up, then we're more likely into a valve or something like that. Now, it's kind of good news if it's a valve causing the problem because you can pull the cylinder heads off a whole lot easier than you can pull the motor out. The next step would be what they call a leak-down test, and they just screw a little device into the spark plug hole, roll it over till both those valves are closed, pressurize the cylinder with air, and see where the air comes out. Now, Obviously, if it comes out the throttle body, then you got an intake valve with a problem. If it comes out the exhaust, then you got an exhaust valve with a problem. If the bottom end of the engine is sound, in other words, it's got good oil pressure, it's not knocking, it's not burning a lot of oil, then it would just be a matter of pulling the cylinder head off on that side or probably going to pull both cylinder heads off, send them out to a shop and have the valves reworked in it. And that is a lot, lot less expensive than changing the motor or any of that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, because it definitely doesn't burn any oil, and there's no smoke or anything like that. So I was yeah. just trying to, you know, right. Yeah, if it's basically sound engine, you know, those Chevrolet engine may be good for way, way past 171,000 miles. Right, I've had one before, and I had doubled the miles that I have now and right. with, with no problems at yeah, all. So. P- pretty sound little engine, and it's a biggish job to pull the heads, but it's not insurmountable. You just pull the intake, pull the exhaust manifolds, take the cylinder heads off. And there are several machine shops around, or you can even 
buy heads that have already been reworked on an exchange basis. You can go on the internet or you can even go to a parts store a lot of times and they will sell a remanufactured head and you just give them yours and they give you new ones. And just you need to determine for sure it's not a lower end problem. If it's not a lower end problem, then it's just going to be a matter of swapping the head or heads out. I wouldn't go that far and just change the one. If you go to the extent of taking one head off, the other head's a piece of cake. You might as well go and just do them both because if I one's bad. Yeah, but you could swap the two cylinder heads out, and you're pretty handy, Jeremy. No, I've never actually fooled with the actual engine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can have it done. It's going to be kind of expensive, but not as much as a new motor or a new car would be for certain. Okay, right. And okay. and that would give you a new sort of a new lease on life. I mean, while you're there, you're also changing the intake gaskets, which were always real problematic on that vehicle. The ejection system also has a an updated ejection system for right. it. Makes them run a lot better. Yeah, that had central port injection on it, and you could convert it over to port injection at the same. Actually, I just recently had that done. So. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> All right, good, good. Yeah, if that's done, and you just reuse those parts. But yeah, just pull the heads off, send them out, either rework what you got or replace with remanufactured heads. And chances are you'll go another 150,000 miles. And right, excellent. What you also need to do, too, is if it is a lower-end problem, you can always put another engine in that little truck, and right. it'll go Yeah, the forever. truck will last forever. Just be careful of where you buy the engine at. Yeah, you either want to go back with a GM reman engine, which are pretty high-quality engines, or I would actually prefer a used engine with lower miles than some of the locally rebuilt engines. Right. Some of the local rebuilt stuff They're is not that junk. great. Yeah, we have right, a lot of trouble right. with it. It's junk. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, 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 thank you all very much for the time. Okay, Jeremy, all right, nice calling, man. All right. Bye-bye. 499-9526 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. That's a pretty viable concept these days. We do a lot of engine replacements, and sometimes we put a GM, Ford, Chrysler, whatever uh-huh. engine back in. Sometimes we'll put a later model used engine in right. with lower miles. I know we had a little PT Cruiser in the shop earlier this week, and it didn't have that many miles on it, but it had a lot of years, and the timing belt gave out on right. it. It actually sheared some teeth off the timing belt. When it did, valves hit the piston, so the engine wasn't really worth repairing, but we were able to find an engine with a lot lower miles on it. Sure. And, of course, when you have the engine out, now's the time to put a new timing belt on it. So well, it's all right there. Yeah, I mean, you right just take there. the cover off, and it's right there. You do it. You don't have to fight it being in the body. Oh, it's everything it's that's accessible now on the ground should be done before it's put back in right. the body. So we took especially a, on that little vehicle yeah, because took, it is crammed in that engine compartment. Well, absolutely, took a used engine. We put a new rear main seal in it. We put a new timing belt on it. Put new spark plugs in it. Put it in. And it runs like a brand new one. Sure. So for a fraction of the cost of replacement, lady's got a car that she likes. She says, "I love my little car. I really, well, really like my car." And, and that's all the more reason to get it fixed. Well, I try. Right. It does what she wants. Considerably less expensive than replacement would have been. Oh, I'm I'm sure. Hey, let's go back to our phone lines. Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, gentlemen. I've got a Ford F-150 2002 model. Okay. It's been a great truck. I'm having some problems with temperature. The gauge rises. Okay. It only does it when you're driving up around 60 miles an hour on the interstate. Okay. You, you can sit it, leave it parked, leave the air conditioner on, mm-hmm. motor running for 30 minutes. It never goes up. Okay. okay. You get out on that interstate, air conditioning or no air conditioning, mm-hmm. the temp rises. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, that gives it away, Bill, and you gave me just the data I need to try to point you in the right direction. See, you've got two situations on overheating. What most people see is what you alluded to earlier. The car comes to a stop and it starts to overheat. Well, that is some kind of an airflow issue. It's not moving enough air through when it's sitting still. But yours is exactly the opposite. What it's doing, as you're loading the engine more, then you're starting to get your overheat issue, which is a capacity issue. 
So it's one of two things. Either the engine is producing more heat than it can get rid of, or the system is not getting rid of enough heat when it's under load. The first and easiest thing would be a radiator that is partially plugged. Now, that's not completely plugged, but partially plugged. Let's say it's got 400 tubes in the radiator and 100 of them are plugged up. Well, at an idle or at low load conditions, it flows enough water through and it'll work just fine. But when you start to put it under load, like pushing the truck 70 miles an hour down the interstate, it just can't get rid of enough heat. And so it starts to overheat and it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. That would be one thing. An even simpler thing would be, of course, a thermostat that's partially stuck and it's not opening fully. It's opening, but it's not opening fully. And it does the same exact thing as a restricted radiator. It's so easy and cheap to fix a thermostat. Obviously, you just try that first. If that doesn't do it, then you look deeper. Now, from there, it gets pretty complex. The next most common thing is going to be either a blown head gasket or a cracked cylinder head. And what it does is that under load, compression starts to leak into the coolant, which pressurizes the coolant, overheats it. And at an idle, it's not doing it to enough of a degree it can handle it, but under load, it will. And that can be detected many times with what they call a hydrocarbon test. That won't always show it, but sometimes it will. And most people, when you tell them, oh, I'm not getting water in the oil, or I'm not, that's not missing, well, it may not. It, you know, that's one symptom, but it can have a cracked head, not get any water in the oil, not misfire at all, and still overheat. It takes a lot of coolant in an oil system to make it even start to look milky. Yeah, by the time you see milky oil, it's too late. It's probably got three quarts of water in it. Right, it's, you done it's done burn the, yeah, the motor body in. So modern oil is not going to change milky because, number one, it's not water, it's glycol. The water's boiling off because the oil is 275 degrees, so all the water's boiling out and the glycol staying in, which mixes with the oil, so you won't see a milky look. But those are the three most common things by a pretty wide measure. I'm not saying it's the only possible things, but almost any time that it overheats going down the road, it's going to be one of those three things. So what I would try, Bill, if you hadn't already done it, is go ahead and replace the thermostat first. Just because you can do that yourself, it's real easy. There's a chance it may fix it. It needs doing anyway. If that doesn't help, then go have a hydrocarbon test done on it. If it comes back negative for hydrocarbons, the next step will be to pull a radiator and send it out somewhere and have them test it. All right. I'm not sure I can change the oil. I don't think I can change it. <laughs> well, yeah, you can bring it to someone. That's right. going to be a real, real simple, real inexpensive thing to do. Probably would be less expensive to do that than even test anything else. came to me. I would join and check hydrocarbons and change thermostat at the same time. And if the coolant hadn't been changed in a while, then it's probably due anyway. You're not going to hurt anything at all doing that. Chance you may fix it, but more likely it could have a plug radiator, partially plug radiator, that sort of thing. Well, you can run a hydrocarbons test real quick, and if it comes back positive, then you know, then you you know. Got, you yeah. need, you're in a head gasket. So then you got to make a decision. Right, how far you want to go with right. it. Okay. Where are you guys located? 11410 Corsi Boulevard. Thank you, Jim. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. 499-9526 is the number if you want to be part of the automotive iron. See, I love guys like Bill. He gives you all of the details. He tells you exactly when it's doing it. That makes it so much easier to diagnose a problem. A lot of people just come and say, my car's overheating. Right. Well, when? when? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just overheat. But when he gives it away, when he says it overheats, driving down the interstate at 60 miles an hour. Correct. Well, there's no sense checking the fan and all that kind of stuff because you got 60-mile-an-hour wind blowing through the radiator. So exactly. you know it's not a fan-type issue. You know it's not an airflow-type issue. So you know you, it's not anything like that. So you go to the other side of the equation. Correct, which mm -hmm. is just going to be either it's producing more heat than it can deal with or it's not getting rid of enough heat. Exactly. So that's just kind of a whole nother issue. Symptoms. Man, when you come in with symptoms and tell... The technician working on your car, it does this when I do this, when I do this. That's right. 
man, that's going to make it a whole lot easier for the technician to find, which in turn is going to be cheaper for you. Well, yeah, and we have in our auto winners class, we do a session called Chops for Mars, Correct. and we talk, tell you how to talk Martian because you're talking to a person with a very, very technical mind who doesn't hear words exactly the same as you hear words. You right. Know, human beings tend to use words kind of loosely, and they take a lot of things from inflection. You know, this means this. Well, you know what I mean. You know uh-huh. who I'm holding my hands or whatever. Technicians don't do that. They deal more in absolutes because right. to them, everything is off on, black, white, zero, one. Correct. You know, it's just the way their mind works. And so you have to know how to speak when you go to a shop to get the job done and get the message across clearly. And if you go to the right shop, the man you're talking to or whoever you're talking to behind, me, the, counter. behind the counter <laughs> is going to pull that information from you. Well, that's right, because he's used to, he's bilingual. Right. He, <laughs> he wants to know when does it happen. Right. What, what is it doing now that you don't want it doing when you pick it up, or what is it not doing now that you do want it doing when you pick up? Exactly. And that's what you got to know to get the car fixed. Hey, let's go back to our phone lines with Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. sir. Yes, sir. I have a 2002 uh, Expedition. Okay. And every time I get in it, it takes me about three times before it starts. It turns over, turns over the first two times, and then it starts on the third time. Okay. And, uh, and I have two codes. I have a 171 and 174 code. Yeah, 171 and 174 are going to be lean on banks one, lean on bank two. Both of those kind of point to the same thing as a hard start problem. The engine's leaning out because it's not getting adequate fuel. Most of the time, Mark, it's going to be one of two things. What year model did you say it was? Uh, 02. 02 model, one of one thing then. It's almost always going to be the fuel pump on that one because it's got an electronic pump. It doesn't have a regulator. The pump is built, the regulator is voltage controlled. It's got a sensor, but it's not a regulator. Most of the time with that, the fuel pump is bleeding pressure back to the tank, and so the pressure drops off the fuel rail, and when you go to start it, it doesn't have pressure for the injectors to fire, so it won't start. Same thing is going to set a 171 and a 174 code because the engine's leaning out going down the road. Now, what you can do to kind of just an easy way for you to confirm this yourself, next time you get in it, instead of trying to start it, turn the key all the way to on, but don't go to start. Turn it off. Go all the way to on. Turn it off. Do that two or three times, and then hit it. And if it immediately starts, then that's most likely going to be it. Because each time you cycle the ignition, it's going to run the pump for a second. And what it'll do, that'll charge the fuel rail. And if it starts immediately, then you know pretty much that's it. And you can confirm okay. that with a fuel bleed-down test. You put a fuel pressure gauge on it, turn the key off, and watch how fast the pressure degrades. And that'll tell you. Pretty important to get that address mark because it's going to end up cutting out on you. It's going to leave you leave somewhere. You on the road. Yeah, so right now you can choose where you want it done and when you want it done. So it's, it's a good idea to go ahead and get that taken care of. Right, right. Outstanding. Well, thank right. you very much, fellas. Okay, Mark. Thanks for calling, man. Sure. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take one last quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hey, Agco Automotive is here to tell you some things are too good to be true, like free beer tomorrow or lose weight on the ice cream and cheeseburger diet. Another thing too good to be true, the low-price oil change. Automotive businesses will sucker you in with an under $30 oil change and then give you a huge list of recommended maintenance and repairs like flushes, brake work, rack and pinion leaks, oil leaks, and more. Well, Agco says be smart. When you get the list, bring your vehicle to Agco and we'll provide you an honest evaluation of any problems you may be having. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. Oh, and those beautiful models just waiting to talk to you late at night? Yeah, too good to be true. 
Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, between tools, to try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 499-9526. Still got several minutes left in the show. That's it. And should you happen to think of something after we go off the air in the next 10 minutes? That's or right. Or maybe... Next week, next week we'll be you. on vacation. That's right. You can still get your questions answered, even when we're on vacation. That's right. You can go to our website. The address is www.agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There is a contact bar on each and every page. You can send Lewis an email, and he'll get it back to you within 24 hours, even while he's out on vacation. That is absolutely correct. And while you're on there, you might peruse around, kind of take a look at some of the detailed topics, tons of information. Put the first of a two-part series on this morning on timing chains. Great. And that is one of those things that, for a long time, way, way back, every engine had a timing chain. Right. Couldn't they hardly, were, they yeah. were simple. Couldn't hardly imagine anything else, really. And then timing belts came out, and they did a pretty decent job. They only had the one little thing that they had to be replaced, and uh-huh. people didn't really like replacing them. So now they're kind of coming full circle and going back to timing chains. And the timing chain is not without problems. It's Correct. not like a silver bullet. It not does anymore. not have to be replaced quite as often as a timing belt. However, it does not maintain as accurate timing as a belt does. Okay. One reason they went to a belt is because a belt does not stretch, pretty much holds its timing throughout life because it is a cogged belt and it has steel belts in it, so it doesn't actually stretch. Okay. We took one that had actually broken and had gone so far, and we took a new one, cut them, laid them side by side, and they were almost identical length. It didn't really stretch. Really? But timing chains do elongate. They get longer. Correct. Every timing chain does that. So when the chain starts to get longer, it retards the cam timing because the spacing between the crankshaft and the cam gear stays the same, but the chain gets longer, so it turns the gear slightly, which Uh interferes with cam timing. So even a chain that has not jumped timing or catastrophically failed can affect engine performance considerably right and fuel mileage considerably. When you start to retard the cam timing, your mileage is going to fall off, your power is going to fall off. So many, many times we are riding around with stretched timing chains, and the word stretched is an old mechanics term. They say a stretched chain. The chain doesn't actually stretch. What happens is that it gets a little bit of slack in all the little joints, and there's a lot of little joints. So if you get a thousandth of an inch in each joint, and it's 200 joints, you got 200 thousandths of an inch, which is almost a quarter inch of slack. There you go. So it's uh, important to realize that timing chains are not permanent and without any problems. They are good. Now, Another real big factor that we didn't have back in the day is that we had basically overhead valve engines back when timing chains were popular before. Uh Now, for the most part, we have overhead cam engines. Now, you're talking about two different lengths of chains now. Considerably longer, maybe multiple chains. And another thing that is a problem with timing chains that was not a problem with timing belts is your maintenance habits. It becomes much, much more critical to do all changes and stuff because with the timing belt, it didn't run in the oil. It was outside of the engine, even though it was under the timing cover. But exactly. it didn't, didn't care about oil changes too It much. had a tensioner, a self-adjusting tensioner on it. And it, like you said, it lasted for a long time because right. it was clean. Generally lasted about 100,000 miles or seven years, whichever came first. With a timing chain, what happens, you've got all these little moving parts which are under a tremendous amount of load. And if you start pushing those oil changes out, you can definitely file up a timing chain pretty well, quickly. Exactly. And now the length of the chains has a is a great big factor now because now you have hydraulic tensioners that That's hold the correct. tension onto them. So if you put the wrong oil in it or you use an inferior grade of oil filter that does not hold tension on the upper end of the engine, that can be a major, major problem. And you can end up either jumping timing or retarding the timing so much that the check engine light will pop on. Right. 
That's been a big problem on the Ford 5.43 valve. They're bad about breaking chain guides. And the 3.6-liter GM engine has a just a horrendous problem oh, with I know. that. I saw that when we tore down the other day. It, yeah, was, it was terrible. They will actually jump timing, and sometimes as low as forty and 50,000 miles, they're jumping timing, Right. particularly if you're extending those oil changes out too much on them. And they came out with a flash update from GM to try to help alleviate this problem, and it moves up the warning on the oil change reminder. It okay. cuts the, the interval down because they figured out, hey, you shouldn't be going this long. Okay. And also reduces the power on the engine considerably, which cuts well, the load on the camshaft. There you go. But that's the reason you bought the car, because it had yeah, power. Yeah, it, it may cut 20% of your power down. So, right. again, not a complete and permanent fix. It kind of makes it a little easier on the engine, but... And kind of do the same thing by not mashing the gas. Right. <laughs> GM is running an engine in everything. That little 3.6 is a very popular engine. It is. It comes into Cadillac CTSs and all that. And it wasn't such a bad engine, although I think it was fairly non-robust well, when it was built. But when they stuck direct injection on the engine, they put the injector pump on the rear cam. Okay. And so that put increases that the load. load on that chain considerably. Right. And I think it's got three chains on the engine. When those chains start to jump time or get out of time or retard time, engine is coming out of the vehicle. It cannot be done in the car. Oh, that's that's definitely. you got to put the vehicle on the lift, unbolt the engine, set the vehicle down, unbolt the engine subframe onto a set of jack stands, and then lift the body off of it. Right. So and, it's a major, major repair. Right, and it requires a set of tools that are very expensive and very, very specialized. We've got a... They call it a high-feature tool set for the uh -huh. 3.6 engine only. And I think that tool set from Kent Moore new is probably about $5,000. That wouldn't surprise and me. And all that does is lines up the cams, lines up the crank, because they don't have timing marks on them. You've got to have the high-feature tool set in order to line all that stuff up to put it back together. Right. You can take it apart real easy. Well. But putting it back together, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have the right stuff to get it back together with. And more and more and more, we're running across that kind of stuff. I know some of the Ford and the Mazda engines, they don't even have a keyway in the crankshaft. And I've noticed that. So the sprocket on the crankshaft has to be lined up with a special tool. Then they have what they call a diamond washer and a big bolt that has to be crushed down to a certain amount of torque. And that holds everything in place. And if it slips, yeah. then you're in big problems. That's it. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Brave new world, huh? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Technology. That's it. Hey, I want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends, go to iTunes and give us a written rating. Yeah, I really appreciate your written ratings. That just makes our day. And we didn't get any last week, so we hope we did a good job. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, go in there and give us a written rating, and we'll certainly appreciate it. Preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.